Section 16 of Jailed for Freedom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Moltisante. Jailed for Freedom by Doris Stevens. Part 3, Chapter 16. An Interlude. Seven months. The President had finally thrown his power to putting the amendment through the House. We hoped he would follow this up by insisting upon the passage of the amendment in the Senate. We ceased our acts of dramatic protest for the moment and gave our energies to getting public pressure upon him to persuade him to see that the Senate acted. We also continued to press directly upon recalcitrant senators of the minority party who could be won only through appeals other than from the president. There are in the Senate 96 members, two elected from each of the 48 states. To pass the constitutional amendment through the Senate, 64 votes are necessary, a two-thirds majority. At this point in the campaign, 58 senators were pledged to support the measure and 48 were opposed. We therefore had to win 11 more votes. A measure passed through one branch of Congress must be passed through the other branch during the life of that Congress. Otherwise, it dies automatically and must be born again in a new Congress. We therefore had only the remainder of the first regular session of the 65th Congress, and failing of that, the short second session from December 1918 to March 1919 in which to win those votes. Backfires were started in the states of the senators not yet committed to the amendment. Organized demand for action in the Senate grew to huge proportions. We turned also to the leading influential members of the respective parties for active help. Colonel Roosevelt did his most effective suffrage work at this period in a determined attack upon the few unconvinced Republican senators. The colonel was one of the few leaders in our national life who was never too busy to confer or to offer and accept suggestions as to procedure. He seemed to have imagination about women. He never took a patronizing attitude, nor did he, with moral unction, dogmatically tell you how the fight should be waged and won. We supposed ability among women leaders. He was not offended morally or politically by our preferring to go to jail rather than to submit in silence. In fact, he was at this time under administration fire because of his bold attacks upon some other policies and remarked during the interview at Oyster Bay, I may soon join you women in jail. One can never tell these days. His sagacious attitude toward conservative and radical suffrage forces was always delightful and indicative of his appreciation of the political and social value of a woman's having vitality enough to, dis to disagree on methods. None of the banal philosophies that you can never win until all your forces get together from the colonel. One day as I came into his office for an interview, I met a member of the conservative suffragists just leaving, and we spoke. In his office, the colonel remarked, You know, I contemplated having both you and Mrs. Whitney come to see me at the same time. However, it was on a similar mission, but I didn't quite know whether the lion and the lamb would lie down together, and I thought I'd better take no chances. But I see you're on speaking terms, he added. I answered that our relations were extremely amiable, but remarked that the other side might not like to be called lambs. You delight in being the lions, on that point I am safe, am I not? And he smiled his widest smile as he plunged into a vivid expository attack upon the senatorial opponents of suffrage in his own party. He wrote letters to them. If this failed, he invited them to Oyster Bay for the weekend. Never did he abandon them until there was literally not a shadow of hope to bank on. When the colonel got into action, something always happened on the Democratic side. He made a public statement to Senator Gallinger of New Hampshire, Republican leader in the Senate, in which Lye pointed to the superior support of the Republicans and urged even more liberal party support to ensure the passage of the amendment in the Senate. Action by the Democrats followed fast on the heels of, the, of this public statement. The National Executive Committee of the Democratic Party after a referendum vote of the members of the National Committee men passed a resolution calling for favorable action in the Senate. Mr. A. Mitchell Palmer wrote to the Women's Party saying that this resolution must be regarded as an official expression of the Democratic Party through the only organization which can speak for it between national conventions. The Republican National Committee meeting at the same time 
commended the course taken by Republican representatives who had voted for the amendment in the House and declared their position to be a true interpretation of the thought of the Republican Party. Republican, Democratic, state, county, and city committees followed the lead and called for Senate action. State legislatures in rapid succession called upon the Senate to pass the measure that they in turn might immediately ratify North Dakota, New York, Rhode Island, Arizona, Texas, and other states acted in this matter. Intermittent attempts on the Republican side to force action, followed by eloquent speeches from time to time, picking their opponents, left the Democrats bison-like across the path. The majority of them were content to rest upon the action taken in the House. I was at this time chairman of the political department of the Women's Party, and in that capacity interviewed practically every national leader in both major parties. I cannot resist recording a few impressions. Colonel William Boyce Thompson of New York, now chairman of Ways and Means of the Republican National Committee, who with Raymond Robbins had served in Russia as a member of the United States Red Cross. Mission had just returned. The deadlock was brought to his attention. He immediately responded in a most effective way. In a brief but dramatic speech at a great mass meeting of the Women's Party at Palm Beach, Florida, he said, The story of the brutal imprisonment in Washington of women advocating suffrage is shocking and almost incredible. I became accustomed in Russia to the stories of men and women who served terms of imprisonment under the Tsar because of their love of liberty, but did not know that women in my own country had been subjected to brutal treatment long since abandoned in Russia. I wish now to contribute $10,000 to the campaign for the passage of the suffrage amendment through the Senate, $100 for each of the pickets who went to prison because she stood at the gates of the White House asking for the passage of the suffrage measure. This was the largest single contribution received during the national agitation. Colonel Thompson had been a suffragist all his life, but he now became actively identified with the work for the National Amendment. Since then, he has continued to give generously of his money and to lend his political prestige as often as necessary. Colonel House was importuned to use his influence to win additional Democratic votes in the Senate, or better still, to urge the President to win them. Colonel House is an interesting but not unfamiliar type in politics, extremely courteous, Mild-mannered, able, quickly sympathetic, he listens with undistracted attention to your request. His round, bright eyes snap as he comes at you with a counter-proposal. It seems so reasonable. And while you know he is putting back upon you the very task you are trying to persuade him to undertake, he does it so graciously that you can scarcely resist liking it. He is the manner of having done what you ask without doing more than to make you feel warm at having met him, but which is exasperating when effectiveness is needed. Not that Colonel House was not a supporter of the Federal Amendment. He was. But his gentle, soft, and traditional kind of diplomacy would not employ high-powered pressure. I shall be going to Washington soon on other matters, and I shall doubtless see the President. Perhaps he may bring up the subject in conversation, and if he does, and the opportunity offers itself, I may be able to do something. But such gentle threat would come from the Colonel. He was not quite so tender, however, in dealing with Democratic Senators after the President declared for the amendment. He did try to win them. Ex-President Taft, then Joint Chairman of the National War Labor Board, was interviewed at his desk just after rendering an important Democratic Labor Award. No, indeed. I'll do nothing for a proposition which adds more voters to our electorate. I thought my position on this question was well known, said Mr. Taft. But we thought you doubtless have changed your mind since the beginning of our war for democracy. I started to answer. This is not a war for democracy, he said emphatically, looking quizzically at me for my assertion. If it were, I wouldn't be doing anything for it. The trouble in this country is we've got too many mm, voting as it is. Why, well, I take the vote away from most of the men, he added. I want to ask him what men he would leave voting. I wanted also to tell him that they were not taking the vote away from one class of men in Russia at that moment. Instead, I said, 
Well, I'm not quite sure whom we could trust to sit in judgment. Well, he looked smiling and serene, as much as to say, oh, that would be a simple matter. However, I said, we have no quarrel with you. You are an avowed aristocrat, and we respect your candor. One quarrel is with Democrats who will not trust their own doctrines. Again, he smiled with as much sophistication as such a placid face could achieve, and that was all. I believe Mr. Taft has lately modified his attitude toward women voting. I do not know how he squares that with his distaste of democracy. There was Samuel Gompers, president of the American Federation of Labor, high administration confidence. It was a long wait before Abby Scott Banker and I were allowed into his sanctum. Well, ladies, what can I do for you? was the opening question. And we thought happily here is a man who will not bore us with his life record on behalf of women. He comes to the point with direction. We speak to the president on behalf of your organization, which has repeatedly endorsed national suffrage, to induce him to put more pressure behind the Senate, which is delaying suffrage. We ask with equal direction. We concealed a heavy sigh as a reminiscent look came into his shrewd, wan eyes, and he began. Doubtless you ladies do not know that as long ago as 1888, I believe that was the date, my organization sent a petition to the United States Congress praying for the adoption of this very amendment, and we have stood for it ever since. Do you think it is about time that prayer was answered? We ventured to interrupt, but his reverie could not be disturbed. He looked at us coldly, for he was living in the past, and continued to recount the patient, enduring qualities of his organization. I will speak to my secretary and see what the organization can do, he said finally. We murmured again that it was the president we wished him to speak to, but we left feeling reasonably certain there would be no dynamic pressure from this cautious leader. Mr. Hoover has appointments a week ahead, he said. For example, his chart for today includes a very important conference with some great men from the Northwest. And he continued to recite the items of the chart, ending with a dinner at the White House tonight. Although you see him for just five minutes, we persisted. He could do what we asked this very night at the White House. But the train to protect secretary was obdurate. We shall leave a written request for five minutes in Mr. Hoover's convenience, we said, and prepared the letter. Time passed without answer. Mrs. Baker and I were compelled to go again to Mr. Hoover's office. Again, we were greeted by the affable secretary, who on this occasion recounted not only his chief's many pressing engagements, but his devoted family life, his Saturday and Sunday habits, which were so dreadfully cut into by his heavy work. We were sympathetic but firm. Would Mr. Hoover not be willing to answer our letter? Would he not be willing to state publicly that he thought the amendment ought to be passed in the Senate? Would the secretary, in short, please go to him to ascertain if he would be willing to say a single word in behalf of the political liberty of women? The secretary disappeared and returned to say, Mr. Hoover wishes me to tell you, ladies, he can give no time whatever to the consideration of your question until after the war is over. This is final. The chief food administrator would continue to demand sacrifices of women throughout the war, but he would not give so much as a thought to their rights in return. Mr. Hoover was the only important man in public life who steadfastly refused to see our representatives. After announcing his candidacy for nomination to the presidency, he authorized his secretary to write us a letter saying he had always been for women's suffrage. Mr. Bainbridge Colby, then member of the Emergency Fleet Corporation of the Shipping Board and member of the Inner Allied Council, which sat on shipping problems, now Secretary of State and President Wilson's cabinet, was approached as a suffragist, known to have access to the president. Mr. Colby had just returned from abroad when I saw him. He's a cultivated gentleman, but he knows how to have superlative enthusiasm. In the light of the world events, he said, this reform is insignificant. No time or energy ought to be diverted from the great program of crushing the Germans. But can we not do that, I asked, without neglecting internal liberties? Mr. Colby is a strong conformist. He became grave. When I was indiscreet enough to reveal that I was inclined to pin my faith to the concrete liberty of women, rather than to a vague and abstract human freedom which was supposed to descend upon the world once the Germans were beaten. I know he wanted to call me seditious, but he is a gallant gentleman and he only frowned with distress. He continued with enthusiasm to plan to build ships. Bernard Baruch, 
then member of the advisory committee of the Council of National Defense, later economic expert at the Peace Conference, was able to see the war and the women's problems at the same time. He is an able politician and was therefore sensitive to our appeal. He saw the passage of the amendment as a political asset. I do not know how much he believed in the principle. That was of minor importance. What was important was that he agreed to tell the president that he believed it wise to put more pressure on the major in the Senate. Also, I believe Mr. Burge was one member of the administration who realized in the midst of the episode that arresting women was bad politics. Say nothing of the doubtful chivalry of it. George Creel, chairman of the Committee on Public Information, was also asked for help. We went to him many times because his contact with the president was constant. A suffragist of long standing, he nevertheless hated our militant tactics for he knew we were winning and the administration was losing. He is a strange composite. Working at terrific tension and mostly under fire, he is rarely in calm enough mood to sit down and devise ways and means. But I can talk to the president every day on this matter, and I am doing all I can, and the president is doing all he can. He would drive at you without stopping for breath. But if you would just ask him to get senator, he is working on the senator now. You people must give him time. He has other things to do, he would say, sweeping aside every suggestion, familiar advice. Charles C. Hills, former chairman of the Republican National Committee, was a leader who had come slowly to believe in national suffrage. But once convinced, he was a faithful and dependable colleague who gave practical political assistance. William Randolph Hearst, in powerful editorials, called upon the senators to act. Mr. R.J. Caldwell of New York, lifelong suffragist, financier, and man of affairs, faithfully and persistently stood by the amendment and by the militants. A more generous contributor and more diligent ally could not be found. A host of public men were interviewed and the great majority of them did help at this critical juncture. It is impossible to give a list that even approaches adequacy, so I shall not attempt it. Our pressure from below and that of the leaders from above began to have its effect. An attempt was made by administration leaders to force a vote on May 19, 1918. Friends interceded when it was shown that not enough votes were pledged to secure passage. Again, the vote was tentatively set for June 27th and again postponed. The Republicans, led by Senator Gallinger, provided skirmishes from time to time. The administration was accused on the floor of blocking action, to which accusation its leaders did not even reply. Still unwilling to believe that he would be forced to resume our militancy, we attempted to talk to the president again. A special deputation of women munition workers was sent to him under our auspices. The women waited for a week, hoping he would consent to see them among his receptions to the Blue Devils of France, to a committee of Indians, to a committee of Irish patriots, and so forth. No time was the answer, and the munition workers were forced to submit their appeal in writing. We are only a few of the thousands of American women, they wrote the president, who are forming a growing part of the army at home. The work we are doing is hard and dangerous to life and health, making detonators, handling TNT, the highest of all explosives. We want to be recognized by our country, so much our citizens as our soldiers are. Mr. Tamalchi replied for the president. The president asked me to say that nothing you or your associates could say could possibly increase his very deep interest in this matter, and that he is doing everything that he could with honor and propriety to do on behalf of the suffrage amendment. An opportunity was given the president to show again his sympathy for a worldwide endeavor, just after having ignored this specific opportunity at home. He hastened to accept the larger field. In response to a memorial transmitted through Mrs. Carrie Chapman Catt, president of the International Women's Suffrage Alliance, the French Union for Women's Suffrage, urged the president to use his, this aid. In response to a memorial transmitted through Mrs. Carrie Chapman Catt, president of the International Women's Suffrage Alliance, the French Union for Women's Suffrage, urged the president to use his aid on their behalf, which will have a powerful influence for women's suffrage in the entire world. The memorial was endorsed by the Suffrage Committee of Great Britain, Italy, Belgium, and Portugal. 
The President took the occasion to say, the democratic reconstruction of the world will not have been completely or adequately obtained until women are admitted to the suffrage. As for America, it is my earnest hope that the Senate of the United States will give an unmistakable answer by passing the federal amendment before the end of the session. Meanwhile, former Democratic senators pledged their support to the amendment. Influenced by the President's declaration of support and by widespread demands for their constituents, Senators Phelan of California, King of Utah, Jerry of Rhode Island, and Culberson of Texas abandoned the ranks of the opposition. During this same period, the Republican side of the Senate gave five more Republican senators to the amendment. They were Senator McCumber of North Dakota, Kellogg of Minnesota, Harding of Ohio, Page of Vermont, and Sutherland of West Virginia. All these men, except Senator McCumber, were won through the pressure from Republican Party leaders. This gain of nine recruits reduced to two the number of votes to be won. When at the end of seven months, from the time the amendment had passed, the House, we still lacked these two votes, and the President gave no assurance that he would put forth sufficient effort to secure them. We were compelled to renew our attacks upon the President. Senator McCumber, though opposed, was compelled to support the measure by the action of the ND legislature, commanding him to do so. Part 3, Chapter 17, New Attacks on the President. The Senate was about to recess. No assurance was given by the majority that suffrage would be considered either before or after the recess. Alarmed and aroused, we decided upon a national protest in Washington, August 6th, the anniversary of the birth of Inez Milholland. The protest took the form of a meeting at the base of the Lafayette Monument in the park, directly opposite the White House. Women from many states in the Union, dressed in white, hatless, and coatless in the midsummer heat of Washington, marched to the monument carrying banners of purple, white, and gold, led by a standard bearer carrying the American flag. They made a beautiful mass of colors. They grouped themselves around the statue against the abundant green foliage of the park. The administration met this simple reasonable form of protest by further arrests. Mrs. Lawrence Lewis of Philadelphia, the first speaker, began, We are here because when our country is at war for liberty and democracy. At that point, she was roughly seized by a policeman and placed under arrest. The great audience stood in absolute and amazed silence. Miss Hazel Hunkins of Montana took her place. Here at the statue of Lafayette, who fought for the liberty of this country, she began, and under the American flag, I'm asking for, she was immediately arrested. Miss Vivian Pierce of California began, President Wilson has said, she was dragged from the plinth to the waiting patrol. One after another came forward in an attempt to speak, but no one was allowed to continue. Wholesale arrests followed. Just as the women were being taken into custody, according to the New York Evening World of August 13th, the president walked out of the Northeast Gate of the White House and up Pennsylvania Avenue for a conference with Director General Railroads McAdoo. The president glanced across the street and smiled. Before the crowd could really appreciate what had happened, 48 women had been hustled to the police station by the wagon load, their gay banners floating from the backs of the somber patrols. They were told that the police had arrested them under the orders of Colonel C.S. Riley, the president's military aide and assistant to the chief engineer attached to the War Department. All were released on bail and ordered to appear in court the following day. When they appeared, they were informed by the government's attorney that he would have to postpone the trial until the following Tuesday so that he might examine witness to see what offense, if any, the woman will be charged with. I cannot go on with this case, he said. I have had no orders. There are no precedents for cases like these. The woman demanded that their cases be dismissed, or else a charge made against them. They were merely told to return on the appointed day. Such was the indignation aroused against the administration for taking this action that Senator Curtis of Kansas, Republican whip, could say publicly. The truth of the statement is made evident by the admission of the court that the 48 suffragists are arrested upon absolutely no charges, 
and these women, among them munition workers and Red Cross workers, are held in Washington until next Tuesday under arrest while the United States Attorney for the District of Columbia decides for what offense, if any, they were arrested. The meeting was called to make a justified protest against continued blocking of the suffrage amendment by the Democratic majority in the Senate. It is well known that three-fourths of the Republican membership in the Senate are ready to vote for the amendment, but under the control of the Democratic majority, the Senate has recessed for six weeks without making any provision for action on this important amendment. In justice to the women who have been working so hard for the amendment, it should be passed at the earliest date, and if action is not taken on it soon after the resumption of business in the Senate, there is every possibility that it will not be taken during this Congress, and the hard-won victory in the House of Representatives will have been won for nothing. When they finally came to trial 10 days after their arrest to face the charge of holding a meeting in public grounds, and for 18 of the defendants an additional charge of climbing on a statue, the women answered the roll call but remained silent thereafter. The familiar farce ensued. Some were released for lack of identification. The others were sent to the district jail for 10 days that they had merely assembled to hold a public meeting for 15 days that they had also climbed on a statue. The administration evidently hoped by lighter sentences to avoid a hunger strike by the prisoners. The women were taken immediately to a building formerly used as a man's workhouse, situated in the swamps of the district prison grounds. This building, which had been declared unfit for human habitation by a committee appointed under President Roosevelt in 1909, which had been uninhabited ever since, was now reopened. Nine years later, to receive 26 women who had attempted to hold a meeting in a public park in Washington. The women protested in a body and demanded to be treated as political prisoners. This being refused, all save two very elderly women, too frail to do so, went on hunger strike at once. This last lodgment was the worst. Hideous aspects which had not been encountered in the workhouse and jail proper were encountered here. The cells, damp and cold, were below the level of the upper door and entirely below the high windows. The doors of the cell were partly of solid steel, with only a small section of grating, so that a very tiny amount of light penetrated the cells. The wash basins were small and unsightly, the toilet open, with no pretense of covering. The cots were of iron, without any spring, and with only a thin straw pallet to lie upon. The heating facilities were antiquated, and the place was always cold. So frightful were the nauseating odors which permeated the place, and so terrible was the drinking water from the disused pipe that one prisoner after another became violently ill. I can hardly describe that atmosphere, said Mrs. W.D. Ascoff of Connecticut. It was a deadly sort of smell, insidious and revolting. It oppressed and stifled us. There was no escape. As a kind of relief from these revolting odors, they took their straw pallets from the cells of the floor outside. They were ordered back to their cells but refused in a body to go. They preferred the stone floors to the vile odors within, which kept them nauseated. Conditions were so shocking that senators began to visit the constituents in this terrible hole. Many of them protested to the authorities. Protests came in from the country, too. At the end of the fifth day, the administration succumbed to the hunger strike and released the prisoners, trembling with weakness, some of them with chills and some of them in high fever, scarcely able to walk to the ambulance or motor car. We had won from the administration, however, a concession to our protests. Prior to the release of the prisoners, we had announced that in spite of the previous arrests, a second protest meeting would be held on the same spot. Our permit to hold the second protest meeting was granted us. I have been advised, Colonel Bradley wrote to Miss Paul, that you desire to hold a demonstration in Lafayette Square on Thursday, August 9th. By the direction of the Chief of Engineers, U.S. Army, you are hereby granted permission to hold this demonstration. Your advice, good order must prevail. We received yesterday, Miss Paul replied, 
your permit for a suffrage demonstration in Lafayette Park this afternoon and are very glad that our meetings are no longer to be interfered with. Because of the illness of so many of our members due to their treatment in prison this last week and within the necessity of caring for them at headquarters, we are planning to hold our neat meeting a little later. We have not determined on the exact date, but we will inform you of the time as soon as it is decided upon. It was responded on credible authority that this concession was the result of a conference at which the President, Secretary of War Baker, and Colonel Ridley were present. It was said that Secretary Baker and Colonel Ridley persuaded the President to withdraw the orders to arrest us and allow our meetings to go on, even though they took the form of attacks upon the President. Two days after the release of the women, the Republican Party, for the first time in history of women's suffrage, caucused in the Senate in favor of forcing suffrage to a vote. The resolution, which was passed unanimously by the caucus, determined to insist upon consideration immediately and also to insist upon a final vote at the earliest possible moment. Provides that this resolution shall not be construed as in any way binding the action or vote of any member of the Senate upon the merits of the said women's suffrage amendment. While not a direct attempt, therefore, to win more Republican senators, this proved a very great tactical contribution to the cause. The Republicans were proud of their suffrage strength. They knew the Democrats were not. With the congressional elections approaching, the Republicans meant to do their part toward acquainting the country with the administration's policy at vacillation and delay. This was not only helpful to the Republicans politically, it was also advantageous to the amendment in that it goaded the majority into action. Nine months had passed since the vote in the House, and we were perilously near the end of the session. While well, on the 16th of September, Senator Overman, Democrat Chairman of the Rules Committee, stated to our legislative chairman that suffrage was not on the program for the session and that the Senate would recess in a few days for the election campaigns without considering any more legislation. On the same day, Senator Jones, Chairman of the Suffrage Committee, announced to us that he would not even call his committee together to consider taking a vote. We had announced a fortnight earlier that another protest meeting would be held at the base of the Lafayette Monument that day. September 16th at 4 o'clock. No sooner had this protest been announced than the President publicly stated that he would receive a delegation of Southern and Western women partisans on the question of the amendment at 2 o'clock the same day. To this delegation, he said, I am, as I think you know, heartily in sympathy with you. I have endeavored to assist you in every way in my power, and I shall continue to do so. I would do all I can to urge the passage of the amendment by an early vote. Presumably, this was expected to disarm us and perhaps silence our demonstration. However, it really moved us to make another hasty visit to Senator Overman, Chairman of the Rules Committee, and to Senator Jones, Chairman of the Suffrage Committee, between the hour of 2 and 4 to see if the President's statement that he would do all he could to secure an early vote had altered their statements made earlier in the day. These administration leaders assured us that their statements stood, that no provision had been made for action on the amendment, but the President's statement did not mean that a vote will be taken this session, and that they did not contemplate being so advised by him. Such a situation was intolerable. The president was uttering more fine words, while his administration leaders interpreted them to mean nothing, because they were not followed up by action on his part. We thereupon changed our demonstration at 4 o'clock in the morning to a more drastic form of protest. We took these words of the president to the base of Lafayette Monument and burned them in a flaming torch. A throng gathered to hear the speakers. Ceremonies were opened with the reading of the following appeal by Mrs. Richard Wainwright, wife of Rear Admiral Wainwright. Lafayette, we are here. We, the women of the United States, deny the liberty which you helped to gain and for which we have asked in vain for 60 years, turn to you to plead for us. Speak, Lafayette, dead these hundred years, but still living in the hearts of the American people. Speak again to plead for us like the bronze women at your feet, condemned like us to a silent appeal. She offers you a sword. Will you not use for us the sword of the spirit? 
mightier far than the sword she holds out to you. Will you not ask the great leader of democracy to look upon the failure of our beloved country, to be in truth the place where everyone is free and equal and entitled to a share in the government? Let that outstretched hand of yours pointing to the White House recall to him his words and promises, his trumpet call for all of us to see that the world is made safe for democracy. As our army now in France spoke to you there, saying, here we are, to help your country fight for liberty. We do not speak here now for us, a little band with no army, no power but justice and right, no strength but in our Constitution and in the Declaration of Independence, and win a great victory again in this country by giving us the opportunity we ask to be heard through the Susan B. Anthony Amendment. Lafayette, we are here. Before the enthusiastic applause for Mrs. Wainwright's appeal had died away, Miss Lucy Branham of Baltimore stepped forward with the flaming torch which she applied to the president's latest words on suffrage. The police looked on and smiled, and the crowd cheered as she said, The torch which I hold symbolizes the burning indignation of the women who for years have been given words without action. For five years, women have appealed to this president and his party for political freedom. The president has given words and words and words. Today, women receive more words. We announce to the president and the whole world today, by this act of ours, our determination that words shall no longer be the only reply given to American women, our determination that this same democracy, for whose establishment abroad we are making the utmost sacrifice, shall also prevail at home. We have protested to this administration by banners. We have protested by speeches. We now protest by the symbolic act. As in the ancient fights for liberty, the Crusaders for Freedom symbolized their protest against those responsible for injustice by co-signing their hollow phrases to the flames. So we, on behalf of thousands of suffragists in this same way, today protest against the action of the president and his party in delaying the liberation of American women. Mrs. Jessie Hardy McKay of Washington, D.C., then came forward to the end of the plinth to speak, and as she appeared, a man in the crowd handed her a $20 bill for the campaign in the Senate. This was a signal for others. Bills and coins were passed up. Instantly, marshals ran hither and thither, collecting the money in improvised baskets, while the cheers grew louder and louder. Many of the policemen present were among the donors. Burning President Wilson's words had met with popular approval from a large crowd. The procession of women was starting back to headquarters. The police were eagerly clearing the way for the line. The crowd was dispersing in order. The great golden banner, Mr. President, what will you do for women's suffrage, was just swinging past the White House gate when President Wilson stepped into his car for the afternoon drive. End of section 16. Recording by Morgan Montesante.